Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. Then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. A significant portion of Father Ricardo's studies was spent with St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. He teaches frequently from that knowledge base. This program serves as an introduction to our late Holy Father's work. The scriptures Father Ricardo uses on this program are from Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 19. Here is Father John Ricardo and, in the image of God, he created them. Let's remind ourselves what we're trying to do. We're trying as best we can to give um, something like a handshake introduction to the Pope's Theology of the Body, with the hope that some of you will express an interest to want to get into something like a more regimented Theology of the Body study group. This happens at a number of parishes throughout the country. I was involved with some folks in Canada who have started one in their parish, some folks out east I know in Washington, D.C. who've been doing it, and it's just a collection of couples, oftentimes some singles too, of all different ages and different realms of experience who can bring different things to the table to try to reflect upon what it is that the Pope reflects upon as he dives into Scripture. At times, and perhaps especially tonight, out of the four different presentations in this handshake, tonight is by far the densest. I'll apologize for that up front, but I'll warn you in advance, tonight might be a little thick, so I'm sorry for that. It was a little thick for me as I was going through it, trying to prepare it. Last week, the analogy I gave was um, trying to knock down some trees so as to begin paving a road. Tonight, please God, we'll start to pave the road. I said a little bit about the context of the Pope's teaching on the theology of the body last week. I want to say a little bit more about it as we begin tonight, just to once again set the stage. Again, how many people have been to a general audience? You go to Rome, it's Wednesday, and you show up and you either sit outside in the piazza or you go inside the Paul VI audience hall and there you are and the Pope greets everybody and then someone else speaks in the native languages of all who are there and then the Pope says something to all the people who are there in their native language, pretty remarkable, um, and then he gives a teaching in Italian. Those general audiences began back around the year 1870 when Pope Pius IX, this was at the time when uh, Italy was being reunified, Italy as a unified country is younger than our country. A whole bunch of different city-states and whatnot. So Italy was unified at that time, and the Pope became, in, in his own terms, a prisoner of the Vatican. So he just kind of hung out in the Vatican. And he was kind of a self-imposed exile from the rest of the world, or at least from the Italian world at the time. And so it was a means for him to have discourse with, or we could say something like public relations with, the outside world. Pius IX began to invite pilgrims to these Wednesday audiences. And then these then became audiences which were carried on by successive popes, down to Pope John Paul II as well. And they were a means for him to greet people who were traveling in Rome, who were in a particular way just wanting to see the Vatican and to meet the Pope. And it was also a means, at least for this pope, to carry on what had been an ancient tradition of who's one of their prime ministries anyway, is really to teach. Oftentimes we forget that today. Forget that the early bishops took advantage of the office that was theirs to really help to teach and to form the Christian people who were gathered around them. And they took seriously the responsibility of being a successor of the apostles and to hand on the faith in its entirety. The current pope does it oftentimes in his general audiences. So I mentioned last week that if you go there now, or at least if you went there a couple weeks ago, you'd hear something of his teaching on Ephesians. And he just keeps plowing through topic after topic. From September of 1979 until November of 1984, the topic was what is now known as the theology of the body. So that's the what's and the why's, how this fits into everything else. Why did he do it? Well, he did it to provide foundations for what he calls, quote-unquote, an adequate anthropology. And we're going to look at that in a second. And he did that because he wanted to help people understand why the church teaches as and what she teaches regarding marriage and family. And then in a particular way, he did it because he wanted to give a biblical foundation to what is found in Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae on human life, which, as I mentioned last week, was by and large poorly received would be an understatement. 
that's the reason why he sought to do this. And again, the best way I know how to describe the theology of the body, as a friend of mine has says, is something like a five-year Bible study. In just a second, we'll try to get a feel for just how many texts he brings into this. And he does that by reflecting on three primary passages in scriptures. The image I gave last week was a triptych. So remember, a three-paneled icon? That's really the easiest way to simplify the Pope's teachings of the theology of the body. The center panel of the icon is Matthew 19, Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees, where the Pharisees ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? Then one of the other panels in the triptych is Matthew 5, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the pure of heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And then the third panel in the triptych is actually the gospel that we had last Sunday at Mass. We had it from the Gospel of Luke. The one that he starts with is the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22. And the discussion between Jesus and the Sadducees, who, unlike the Pharisees, reject the teaching of the resurrection because they don't think that Moses taught it in the law, which is why Jesus, in the Gospel last week, answers the Sadducees by saying, even Moses knew that there was a resurrection because God revealed to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. I am, not I was. Therefore, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. So that's the third passage, and it has to do with the treatment on the resurrection of the body. So those three scenes somehow encompass everything that the Pope is going to teach about in these five years. Let me just give you an idea of some of the other passages that get pulled out from these three panels. So this center panel, Matthew 19, the discussion about divorce, is something like the inroad for the Pope to teach about Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're going to look at that tonight. And that's pretty much all that he gets into in the first panel, as if that's not enough to handle. It's the story of creation and God's original plan for man and woman in the fall, which should keep us pretty occupied. The panel of Matthew 5 and the discussion, Blessed are the pure of heart, will lead into a discussion on, again, Genesis 3. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, which is where John talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and has been purchased at a great price. 2 Samuel 11, the story of David and his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Sirach 23, an exhortation on the warnings of immorality and lust in particular. Ezekiel 16, Galatians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12. All of those passages are ones which he dives into in the course of looking at Matthew 5. And then the other panel, Matthew 22, the discussion of the resurrection of the body, leads him into a discussion on 1 Corinthians 15, which is where Paul talks about the resurrection of the body. Back to Matthew 19, because this passage about the resurrection of the body, as you remember from the gospel last week, is where Jesus says, in the age to come, the children of this age are neither married nor are given in marriage. So it's a means for which the Holy Father begins to talk about celibacy and how celibacy foreshadows the life of heaven. We're going to talk about that in the last week, as well as how celibacy and marriage are both supposed to work together. 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about celibacy. Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about marriage. Isaiah 54, the Song of Songs, and 1 Corinthians 13. So I list all those passages just to say that this really is a pretty intensive analysis of Scripture. And it's not an exegetical analysis of Scripture. That's not what the Pope's doing. The Pope's trying to reflect on the Word of God. Again, with the attitude that we talked about last week, not an attitude of suspicion, but rather an attitude that says, okay, Lord, what is it you want to show to us about who we are, about who you are, and about how we find the life that you've made us for? So those are some of the passages that we'll get into as we go through some of this, and certainly if we do a study group, that we'll definitely get into. The starting point of tonight is really this adequate anthropology. What do you suppose that means? Adequate anthropology. What's anthropology? Study of man. What's adequate? Something like good enough, huh? Or one which takes into account everything dealing with man, the human person. Whenever we say man, we're talking about the human person. Truthful. Yes, truthful, by all means. Which means that there are inadequate anthropologies out there, right? That's his point. There are being proposed right now inadequate anthropologies of the human person, an insufficient grasp of what it means to be man and woman. That's what he wants to address. Starting point here. There is a pretty common accusation by uh, not a few people that the church has something like a disparaging view of the body. Church is down on sex. Church is ashamed of sex. Church thinks the body is dirty. Church thinks the body is shameful. 
church thinks the body is something to be hid from and to be despised. Rubbish. Anyone who thinks that is terribly out of touch with what the church, in fact, teaches, which is why, once again, I'd refer you to this little handy-dandy book, which just in the last 35 years or so, 40 years, synthesizes what, in fact, the church has taught in a particular way regarding marriage and family. Hopefully, uh, if we dive into the theology of the body in depth, perhaps hopefully tonight and and next week in a particular way, as we look at the redemption, uh, we can come to a more genuine understanding of what it is that the church really teaches, which means this will be imminently practical for you and me because we're involved in discussions all the time with people who are confused on what the church teaches on matters of sexuality in particular. Not simply matters of sexuality, but that is what the theology of the body is somewhat trying to narrow in on as we look at the human person. So what the Pope is saying is that what's called for today regarding social issues in general, things like euthanasia, our approach to embryonic stem cell research, all of our approaches to issues like that are issues which should flow from our understanding of the human person, anthropology. When we have an inadequate anthropology, we make bad decisions regarding human life. If we have an adequate understanding of anthropology, of who we are, we should, at least logically, be able to make good decisions regarding the value of human life, not just on issues like that, but also in a broader sense on issues of sexuality in general. Remember, the Pope had written on a number of occasions that, in his mind anyway, the fundamental crisis of the modern age was a crisis regarding the human person, the idea of the human person. Namely, an inadequate idea of the human person is out there, one which either isolates simply the psychological dimension of the human person, or one which simply emphasizes the physical dimension of the human person, or one which emphasizes the sexual dimension of the human person. And what the Pope is saying is all those different sciences, whether they're hard or soft sciences, which help us understand man, biology, psychology, anthropology, all of those things, all of those are very useful, very valuable. We need to make use of those. Those aren't to be shunned or put off or ignored. We want to make use of those things. The danger oftentimes, and those of us who are specialists at work in one field or another, know that we tend to get rather tunnel vision. We can tend, anyway, to think that this one area that I'm involved in right now is the be-all and end-all area that will explain man. And that's not the case. That's why the Pope says what we need to do is take note of what all these other fields bring to the table but then kind of pile them all together under the umbrella that is revelation. Aware of the truth that it's only in the light of Jesus, who is not only fully God but fully man, that the mystery of the human person comes to light. So by coming to know Jesus more and more, we understand more and more who we are. The Lord teaches us not merely how to pray, although that's pretty important, but how to work, how to rest, how to play, how to eat, how to engage in leisure, how to suffer, everything about human life, because he is the perfect man. He is us as we were intended to be, in addition to being the divine person. This is significant because this whole attempt to get an adequate anthropology, because in recent years, and and by recent years I mean, say, the last 400, what's reigned in an understanding of the human person, whether we tend to think this way out loud or not, This is really the undercurrent in the understanding of the human person is something like a dualistic interpretation of man. By dualistic, I mean that there's some sort of severe split between the I, which is some floating self, the conscious experiencing me. There's a split between that and this, my flesh, the body. In such a dualistic understanding of the human person, what happens then is that the body is instrumentalized or objectified. It's treated like a thing, as opposed to understanding that the body is actually an expression of the person. That is, by and large, the worldview that you and I swim in right now. That's what justifies and rationalizes many behaviors of people. Euthanasia is a great example. I will help you by killing you. That's easy to justify if you believe in dualism. It's pretty hard to justify if you believe that the human person is a mix of body and soul. If I kill you, I end your life. That does not help you. The Greeks had, and this thought process carries on into many of us who are Catholic and Christian, an understanding of the human person that there is a soul which is trapped inside the prison of the body. And when we die, this soul will be freed from the prison of the body. That's not biblical teaching. That's why it's so important to remember last week's gospel. And Jesus is teaching that when we rise, we will rise bodily. 
that's part of the, the understanding behind why we um, put so much emphasis on the ascension of Jesus into heaven and the assumption of Our Lady into heaven. She has taken with her her body, glorified, into heaven. Jesus has ascended with his body into heaven. And as they have gone, they show us what will happen to us. So it's worth knowing the end of something or the purpose of something before you know how to use it here. In knowing the end of the body, hopefully it helps us understand something more of the significance of the body here. The body isn't to be disparaged. The body isn't to be despised. The body isn't to be treated like an instrument or a machine or a thing. The body is made for, ultimately, communion with God in heaven, ultimately. And even now, it's the means by which you and I enter into relationships with each other, express ourselves, and begin to enter into communion with God, particularly through the sacraments. All of that flows from understanding that the human person is not an angel who is pure spirit, but rather is a body and soul together. We could say, and the Pope does say, that the body is a sacrament of the person. What's a sacrament? I'll start you. A visible sign of an external reality or, or an invisible grace or an invisible reality. So the body is a visible sign of the invisible reality. You all flunked Catechism 101 right there, sorry. <laughs> so the body is a visible manifestation of the person that I am, which is to say that I express myself through actions not just through words, and not just by being an intellect or being a mind, I express myself through actions. So when I do something bodily, I do it. Hopefully, if we follow that out, you can see why the body is so significant when we start talking about matters of sexuality. Because persons are engaged in actions, not just bodies. Persons are doing something. And then the question becomes, well, is what they're doing true or not? Example, man and a woman who are engaged in sexual intercourse are saying bodily to each other, everything I have is yours. That's the language the body speaks. I am yours and you and you alone are unique and irreplaceable to me. And I accept you in your entirety as you are. That language, we could say, is either true or it isn't. If it's not, then that means the act becomes a lie. Not that I'm intending to lie, but the language actually has something give you a completely different kind of illustration to make the same point. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas walks up to Jesus. Huh? And what does he do? He kisses him. And what does Jesus say? You would betray me with a kiss? Why does he say that? Because a kiss can only mean one thing. A kiss means friendship, affection, care, concern, intimacy. That's the language of the act. And now he's overwritten that language with a lie. See how the body has, a again, a language to it. And therefore, what we want to try to do is we want to try, with the grace of the Holy Spirit, to live lives of integrity, where, in fact, our actions and our intentions and everything involved in us is all interiorly ordered towards living the truth. That's how we'll find freedom, real freedom. And all of that has tremendous consequences for what the church proposes, and she proposes, huh? Important to hear that, particularly in the midst of some of the cultural response right now from some of the... Uh, editorials that are being written about the quote-unquote Christian right, that would be you and me, in the media's eyes anyway. huh? The Christians, not a small number of people, are um, illogical, unreasonable, bigoted, out of touch, narrow-minded, unable to think for themselves, grasping at myths, when in fact what the Holy Father has been trying to do, and hopefully what we all do, and what the church has always tried to do, particularly in calling people to understand the value of using the mind and human reason, is to sit down on issues, not appeal to emotion, not appeal to authority, but actually to look at what it is we're talking about and then to genuinely engage in a dialogue. The dialogue doesn't mean necessarily give and take. That's not the point of the dialogue. The dialogue is for people actually to be heard and then to understand, okay, well, we propose this regarding whatever the issue is. Now, that sounds ridiculous. What reasons might you be able to propose to help me understand that? And when we're talking about moral issues, the church has reasons which she would propose. And so the more that you and I can be aware of not simply this adequate anthropology, but continue to grow in our knowledge of not simply what the church teaches, but why she teaches as she teaches, then the more you and I will be able to get engaged in a meaningful discussion with our peers and those we work and live with and serve with. And please, God, just as the Lord continues to call us to greater freedom, we can be instruments to draw others to freedom. Hope we realize how absolutely pivotal that is.
It is the world which treats the body disparagingly and flippantly. It is the church, thanks to what God has revealed in Revelation, not because us and our brilliance have come up with some answers, but because of what God has revealed, that helps us understand the fullest significance of what the human body is. Having said all that, let's try to dive into some of the Pope's thought. And this will be somewhat like a shotgun. Sorry about that. But I'm trying to condense two and a half years' worth of teaching into about a half hour. So we'll see what we can do. So we'll try and give a framework Again, kind of encouraging us to do the hard work ourselves, which is to pick up the book, the work, the theology, the body, and to have it hand in hand with Scripture, and to let it be a meditation. What a great reflection this would be for us as we try to do a Bible study. This is not too deep that you and I can't get it, though it might stretch us a little. So I gave the image of a triptych already. Let me give this other image that'll help, and that's the um, category on your sheets under adequate anthropology. This is the four horizons. This is another attempt to try to hang the Pope's thought on something so that you can get your hands around it. And the four horizons are these. First is the beginning. Second is the fall and man's tendency to what we call concupiscence. Third is the redemption, where we talk about how Christ's grace, the effect of his passion, death, and resurrection, brings you and me the power to live what it is God's plan has been from the beginning regarding marriage, family life, and sexuality, brings that power to bear in our lives as he intended it. And then the last horizon is the resurrection of our bodies in heaven. The beginning, the fall, the redemption, and the resurrection. Those are the four horizons, okay? So what I'm going to try to do tonight is get into the beginning and the fall. Next week, we're going to look at the redemption. And then the last week, we'll look a little bit at the resurrection of the body. Again, the question I always ask myself anyway, and perhaps anticipating yours is, so what? How is this practical? What does this do for me? Well, I think what it does for me in a particular way and what it can do for all of us is it fills us with truth as you and I come to grow in our understanding of the dignity of my own body, my own personhood first. Hopefully that will help me to act accordingly in my own life, then to treat others accordingly as I interact with them. And then in the course of that interaction, hopefully to do so in an attractive enough fashion that other people who don't have the same understanding of personhood in the body will look at us as a community and go, what do you people have that we don't have? So the expression of the pagan communities surrounding the first Christian communities was, look at how they love one another. It didn't mean look how nice they are to each other. Niceness is not a virtue. Kindness is a virtue. Niceness is not a virtue. The word for nice comes from the same root word in Latin for ignorance. Jesus is not nice. Jesus is kind. It's better to be kind than nice. So the response of the community wasn't, wow, look how nice they are. The response was, look how they love each other. Look how they care about each other. Care enough at times, not simply to be there when someone's in need and you reach out when they're going through a crisis or when someone's uh, bedridden and they need someone to bring them food or whatnot, but kind enough to be able to say, what in the world are you doing with your life? That's kindness. You are heading for a cliff. Stop. That's kindness. It's an act of love. And that's what we need. That's how Scripture uses the image of iron sharpening iron. We used to call it in one of the households I lived with, sandpaper ministry. One guy would just rub on the other guy and so annoy me that finally figured, I, okay, I'm doing something here which is really bugging you. I'm sorry, what is it? We don't have to do it that way. But we want to be really known for how we love each other. And love in any relationship cares enough to talk and to risk. So that's what's in it for us. So let's look at the beginning. The beginning is, again, the center panel of the triptych, Matthew 19, where Jesus answers the Pharisees who ask him the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? By saying, well, what was written at the beginning? And again, by doing that, Jesus is saying to you and me that what God revealed about man and woman before the fall, you and I somehow still have access to. That is profoundly hopeful. That's very different from many non-Catholic strains of Christianity as they look at the human person. They would say that what God has prepared for us and planned for us at the beginning is gone, lost, we're totally depraved, we have no hope of recovering that. But that's not the case. These four horizons that the Pope lays out, he would say there's a continuity between them all. There's a discontinuity too in the sense that the fall has happened and now you and I don't actually live the life of the beginning as freely as we once lived it. But we still have access because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, you and I can still live if we want it the way he intended us to live. And that is profoundly good news, particularly regarding the relationship between men and women. 
particularly regarding the relationship in marriage. What God intended for husbands and wives, from the get-go, we can still live. Though it'll be work now, whereas before it would have been effortless. But it's worth the work. So that's the beginning. The beginning then takes us to particularly Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it's going to introduce us to these three terms that I have underneath the four horizons. Those three terms are original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. Now, if we start thinking about Genesis and I throw out the word original, the word that probably comes to most people's minds is sin, right? Original sin. Most of us don't come up with original nakedness. It doesn't just roll off the tongue, you know? Original unity. Original solitude. But these are where the Pope starts. He doesn't start with original sin. He starts with this, with how it was at the beginning before we rebelled and lost what we once had. So as to tell us that what we once had, we can have again, at least in a fashion. So I want to try and explain these three terms and go into them a little bit. This is where it might get a little heavy. Apologize. Original solitude has two meanings and four characteristics. One of the meanings is positive. And one of the meanings is negative. The positive meaning of original solitude is that man or the human person is and discovers himself as he sees creation unlike any other creature. We are unlike anything else that God has made. Absolutely unique and superior to all the rest of worldly creation. And man in Genesis experiences this just by his daily life. He encounters the animals and he realizes the alligator isn't like me. Which is to say, this is not a body that expresses a person. The alligator's body does not express the alligator's person. The alligator is not a person. Only man, the human person, as he walks the earth through his experience, realizes, I'm unlike the rest of creation here in that I have a body that expresses who I am and I can't find anyone else like me. So man names the animals. Man is given dominion over the earth. Again, dominion over the earth doesn't mean man's given the power to just pillage the earth. He's given dominion as the Lord has dominion. The Lord's authority is always aimed at trying to bring us and all of creation to fulfillment. That's the purpose of authority, to lead to fulfillment. So it is for us as we go about the task of exercising dominion on the earth, that's why the ecology, again, is such an important factor in what we do. That's something of the positive meaning for original solitude. We are superior to all the rest of creation that we encounter on the earth. The negative meaning of original solitude is we're alone. Or man's alone here, thinking more in the story of Genesis 2. Remember, Genesis 2 is where God fashions the man, the male, and then after having commented seven times that it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, God looks at the man, the male alone, and says, this is not good. This is not good. So God causes the man to fall into sleep, then out of his rib, which is a symbolic way of showing out of the same stuff that man is made of, God fashions woman and presents the woman to man. But why is it not good that man's alone? Yes, he's made for communion. Man, the human person, every human person. If you get nothing else out of these four weeks, get this, please. The human person can only, absolutely underscored a hundred times, only find himself. That is to say, find fulfillment in a sincere giving of himself. That sincere giving happens bodily, because that's how we express ourselves, which is to say that you and I are made for communion. That's one of the reasons that the Pope says that man and woman together image God more fully than man alone. Why? Because God is three. God is a communion of persons. We'll say a little bit more about this a little bit farther on in the outline, but God is, most basically, three persons in communion. Therefore, you and I actualize what it is you and I were made for. This is how practical this is. Most when you and I live in genuine, authentic, real communion with each other. Marriage is a particular way of that. Consecrated life is a particular way of that. But it entails everything. Friendship, work, service, every dimension of our life. Just think of the negative experiences we've had of that when we know we've been lied to, when we've been hurt, when we walk into an environment where we're distrustful, when we're suspicious, you find out someone slandered you, and you're aware that what's happening here, this is not a genuine communion. Here's someone feigning communion with me. And we've all had that experience one way or another, and how miserable it is. Imagine what it would be to be in communion with each other where that's never a threat, where there are no lies, no one talks behind each other's backs, no one has an agenda, no one's trying to climb on top of another person to get ahead. Imagine that. That will be heaven. That was what we once had. That's the tragedy of the fall. And yet that's what we will have again. 
and not just again, but in an even greater way than we had it before, which is just how amazing God is. God makes something perfect. We fall. It gets lost. God makes it better than perfect. As the song used to say, what a mighty God we serve. So that's the negative meaning of of original solitude. Through his body, man recognizes he's alone. So also, though, through the body of the woman, he's going to recognize, here is finally another person like me whose body expresses a person, unlike the alligators, and yet this body that expresses this person isn't like me at all. Man just knows that as he sees woman as God presents woman to him. And they learn from each other that they're made for each other. There is no superiority or domination here that doesn't exist. They both recognize in a glance, I am made for you. That's why Adam speaks for the first time, the first time that man speaks in scripture is when God presents woman to him. And he realizes not only her identity, but his own identity. At last, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is to say, this is one who is like me, whose body expresses a person. And for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother so as to cleave to his wife. Why? Because we know that we're made for each other. They just knew that. They had what the Pope calls the peace of the interior gaze. There was no lust. There was no objectification. There was no suspicion. There was no mistrust. There was no fear. Can you imagine what that would be like in the relationship between the sexes? They just knew, I am made for you, and you're made for me. My desire is to give myself to you and to receive you in your entirety and to know that's how you see me. That's what they had. That is the tragedy of the fall, is that that which once happened so effortlessly has been lost. The overriding attitude, we could say, in man, as he sees woman, is joy, and vice versa, woman and man. Joy in and because of the other person. And the joy is a way of showing that they both recognize that this is what they're made for. Again, we will not find happiness by amassing more things for ourselves to personally entertain ourselves with. We will find happiness by finding legitimate ways to give ourselves to another and to receive the other in their entirety and to accept them as they are. You could jump down to communion of persons right here because this is to say in how they recognize each other that they recognize this is what they're made for. They're made for a communion of persons. They just know that. Adam knew, the male knew, it was bad to be alone. God kind of called his attention to it if he didn't get that. It's bad for you to be alone. And now in the other, as they stand face to face with each other, they're filled with joy. And so they enter into and engage in this communion of persons, which is then an image of the Trinity. And that's one of the boldest things that the Pope's getting at in the whole theology of the body, is that married love is an image of, an icon of the Trinity. Hardly disparaging the marriage there. Married love is an icon of the Trinity. It's a window in to help understand something of the Trinity. A communion of persons who exist in a communion of love, whose love is fruitful. And again, that understanding of communion or communio is, we could say, many becoming one without ceasing to be many, huh? My identity isn't totally lost. I'm not absorbed in the other. And yet there's a real communion of persons. And they recognize all of this precisely through their bodies. And that's what's known as the nuptial meaning of the body, which is underneath communion of persons. By the nuptial meaning of the body, it is to say that the body is interiorly ordered, okay? It's inscribed within us from the moment God makes us. Our bodies, that is to say our persons, are interiorly ordered to give ourselves to another. Despite the fall, that still remains. That, in fact, helps explain so much of sexual sin. It's a misguided attempt to try to do that, but it makes sense. It's still written into the fabric of who we are. We want communion. That's what we're made for. And the problem now isn't with our bodies. The problem is with our wills. That's where the disorders happen. So that's the nuptial meaning of the body. Adam, when he sees the woman, understands this is what I'm made for, not to take, not to objectify, not to use, not to exploit, not to manipulate, but to give myself and to receive her as she is, entirely and fully. And that's what we have. That's original uh, solitude, those two meanings. Four characteristics, I'll go through these pretty quick. First one, man and woman are different from the animals. It's the first characteristic of original solitude. This is something that man learns by his experience on the earth. The giraffe is not like me. The hippo is not like me. 
we are different from the animals. We're different in that we have self-determination. We can engage in relationship with God. We can enter into friendship with each other. We can express ourselves in a whole series of ways that the animals cannot. Okay, so man is different from the animals. Second characteristic. Man and woman each have a unique relationship with God. And so a positive sense of this original solitude is to say that you and I need solitude with God. That's not a negative thing, that's a positive thing. You and I, as individual men and women, as individual persons, are called individually as persons into a personal relationship with God where he speaks to me as John, where he speaks to you as Betty. He calls us by name into this incredibly intimate communion. That's a very positive thing. And man and woman both have a unique relationship with God. Third characteristic. Man and woman are created, and parenthetically, that is to say, man and woman are contingent creatures. We're dependent. Very important, something that modern society often dismisses and rebels against more than that. So man and woman are created, dependent. We're created in the image and likeness of God, who is three, which is to say that you and I are oriented to a relationship with another. So we said that a minute ago, but it's one of the characteristics just so we can flush it out. So this is inscribed in the very fabrics of who I am, not beginning at the age I hit 21 or beginning at the age of 15 when I recognize that, you know, women exist, or whatever that age happens, huh? Seven. (laughs) Three. (laughs) In the womb, I don't know. (laughs) priest once gave me the encouraging news that sexual temptation ends roughly 12 hours after you're in the grave. Well, that's really encouraging. Thank you very much. We just deal with it. But we have inscribed in the very fabrics of who we are that we're made for another. We're oriented to another person, into a relationship with another person. And then lastly, the fourth characteristic, and we said this already, but it's the characteristic here, the body of man and woman expresses the person of man and woman. And the body, because it is the person, is the means by which a person makes a gift of self. That becomes very important when we start talking about sex. The body is the means by which one person gives themselves, not just their body, to another. So the culture that we live in, oftentimes, certainly the MTV culture, has basically reduced sex to be an indoor sport where two people bump into each other for mutual pleasure, as opposed to the giving of persons to each other and the respecting of persons who are engaged in this, which is going to mean there are all sorts of parameters around this by which we're going to judge whether or not this is, in fact, respectful and honoring of the person as opposed to just instrumentalizing and objectifying the other person, which is what a dualistic framework allows to happen. All right, let's try to flip to original unity. Next point. Original unity is the means by which man and woman overcome the experience of solitude. So to say that man and woman are created in original unity is to say that man and woman image God most when they are in a communion of persons, or more when they're in a communion of persons than when they are alone. That's not to say that when I'm alone, I'm I'm an incomplete person. But in a communion, in friendship, because I'm made for friendship, and you're made for friendship. Marriage is a particular kind of friendship and relationship. Therefore, a man and a woman image God more when they are in a genuine and authentic communion than they do when they are alone. And again, the basic justification for that is because God is free. That's why despite our selfishness, oftentimes it happens a lot with kids, huh? Summer vacation comes, you can't wait. I don't have to do anything, no exams, no homework, no papers to write. I don't have to get up early, you know, unless I'm working. I can do anything I want. And then after about six weeks of that, you kind of get bored. I mean, if you're really honest, you get bored. Why? Because merely having everything and yet being alone isn't doing it for me. What I need are other people. I need friendships. I need relationships. So this unity, this original unity, expresses itself in four levels. That's why you've got four bullet points underneath original unity. First level, it's an original unity in that it is a unity in their humanity. We're talking about relationship between men and women now. Both man and woman are human beings. Both are created in the image and likeness of God. Both are persons. Both are equal in dignity. Both are equal in their humanity. Second point, but this equality in humanity is expressed in a complementariness of masculine and feminine, or male and female would be actually more precise. So there's a unity in sexual difference. You and I, ladies, are not the same. Pretty stinking obvious. On a whole host of levels, you and I are not the same. That's part of the tension, huh? 
they come up with. We see reality virtually in entirely different ways. And that's how God intended it. It's supposed to work in harmony. Unfortunately, with the fall, what was intended for harmony often, doesn't have to, but often works instead as conflict. So we are different ways of being a body. Two different incarnations, we could say, of the human person, of being human. Third point. This original unity between man and woman is expressed most definitively in the conjugal act. That is to say, in sexual intercourse. Where a man and a woman really become one flesh. See, only a man and a woman can really become one flesh. Only a man and a woman can become, in sexual intercourse, one biological reproducing organism. Whether or not they ever give, or whether the act ever leads to children or not, the act is of a particular kind which makes them to be one flesh. That makes that act to be absolutely unique. Everything else I can do alone. That I cannot do alone. Last, the original unity of man and woman is expressed in the blessing of fertility. Love is fruitful. Love gives life. And it does so on many levels. Firstly, physically, huh? But also spiritually. And we'll get into this when we look at the resurrection of the body and something of the discussion of consecrated celibacy and priesthood and religious life. But it's one of the reasons why you call a nun sometimes mother and why you call a priest father. St. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, this is worth knowing for all the fundamentals who throw at you, why do you call your priest father? Jesus says, call no man father. Well, Paul says and calls himself father. When he writes to the Corinthians, he says, granted, you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, but you have one father who gave birth to you in the gospel. That was me. That's why you call a priest father. They give birth spiritually. They augment the life that a mother and a father are creating spiritually as well as physically within their home. That's our task, is to help bring that to greater fruition. That's the fourth point in original unity, original nakedness. And of course, there are four concepts. First concept, there is a fullness of the understanding of the meaning of the body. So remember, the ending of Genesis 2 is, and the man and woman were both naked and they knew no shame. The Pope describes that as what he calls a limit experience, which is to say, you and I can walk so far to that and then go, I have no idea what that would be like. The man and the woman were naked and knew no shame. That was how humanity existed and was intended to exist. Now, shame has both a negative effect and a positive purpose. But there was no shame. So there was a fullness to the understanding of the meaning of the body. That is to say, when they looked at each other, they knew, I'm made for you. I'm made to give myself to you. I'm made to be in relationship with you. I'm made to be in communion with you. I'm not made to manipulate you. You're not here to entertain me. You're not here to be exploited. You're not here to be objectified. You're not here to be used for my own personal pleasure. No, you and I are made to be in relationship and communion with each other. They knew that. That was just there. And connected to that, second point, there was complete acceptance of the other as who they are, not just of their bodies, but mindful that the body expresses the person. They accepted the other, the person, in their entirety. Third, and building upon the first two, there was complete interpersonal communication. That is to say, there were no hang-ups, there were no fears, there were no senses of threat. Again, it's this peace, what he calls the peace of the interior gaze. And then lastly, the fourth point, which we've talked about a number of times, but it keeps coming up, this understanding that the body expresses the person. We can add here a fourth term. First three terms were original solitude, original unity, and original nakedness. We talked a little bit about the communion of persons, the nuptial meaning of the body. In the next line, the hermeneutic of the gift, we could call that the fourth term. Hermeneutic, interpretation. Okay, so the interpretation of the gift. Which is to say, to interpret everything through the lens of gift. God has created everything that is out of nothing. Everything that exists, God has fashioned out of nothing. And he's done it simply because he loves and he wants to bestow his love upon us. And you and I are the privileged recipient of his love. That is the story in the drama that is salvation. God intervenes over and over and over and over again on behalf of man and woman. So much so that in the fullness of time, he actually becomes one of us and walks this earth and speaks to us with a human voice calls us to communion, calls us to repent, sets us on the way that leads to what it is he made us for, and then doesn't just set us on the way, but gives to us the grace to do it. The grace comes in a particular way through the sacraments so that you and I can live the life he intended for us to live at the beginning. 
It's all love. Which brings us to the tragedy of the fall. The tragedy of the fall is that the giver, capital G, who is God, the Father, becomes the accused. Genesis 3 details for us the story of the fall and the temptation. And in the fall, the root of the fall is the serpent's question, did God really say that? Did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree of the garden? Which, of course, God didn't say. God had spoken about one particular tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan accuses God by saying, God knows that if you eat of that, then you will become like God's. The tragic irony in that is that that it was God's intent from the beginning for us to share in his own life. But the evil one accuses the father of being capricious, jealous, possessive, selfish, as opposed to being the generous father who is the giver of everything that we have. And that continues to be, or in one way or another, the root of pretty much every one of our temptations. Is that somehow God becomes accused. And the evil one plays that up to no small extent. Do you really think God loves you? How can you possibly think that, given what's just happened in your family? Given the difficulty you're having with your children, or in your marriage, or at your work? Given the sickness you just got diagnosed with? Given the fact that you feel so alone, how can you possibly think God loves you? That's usually the root. It takes a lot of different expressions, but in some way that's the root. And that's always his strategy, is to put the giver in the guise of being the accused. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care. He's not interested. He's not even there. Just do whatever you want and be on with life, which is when you tell him to go back to hell. So in the fall, man listens to that accusation, distrusts God, wants to break his dependence on him, and casts him out of his heart. Casts God out of his heart, is what the Pope says. And that's what you and I do in sin. We cast God out of our heart. It may not be what we're intending to do, but it is the real effect. We cast him out of our hearts. And the result is a break. A break in the relationship between man and woman and God, which is why they hide in Genesis 3. A break in the relationship between man and woman and the ground, Man once tilled the ground without effort, now he tills the ground by the sweat of his brow. A break in the relationship within themselves, what once worked in harmony between their will and their bodies is no longer in harmony. And a break in the relationship between them as men and women, which is the first effect that they experience after the fall. After the extent of the break with God, they hide from God. Then the next thing they do, huh, is they sow fig leaves for themselves. Why? Because they are ashamed. Once they looked at each other and knew by this peaceful interior gaze, I'm made for you and you're made for me, now as a result of the fall, as a result of wanting to decide and to define for themselves what is good and what is evil, which is what's being spoken about symbolically in the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they want to define for themselves what is good and what is evil. As a result of wanting to do that, they now no longer have this peaceful gaze with each other and the other is held in suspicion. Now man looks at the woman with the eyes of lust or vice versa and the other senses it. The other senses that what you're doing is objectifying me. You're not really interested in me. You're interested in getting something out of me in whatever form that takes, an experience that is not foreign to any of us. So once there was no shame that was original nakedness, now there is shame. The feeling of being used, the feeling of not being accepted in our entirety, the feeling of being objectified. And all of that is not because there are problems with the body. There is nothing wrong with the body. The problem is with the will. That's where the break has happened. Now the peaceful gaze is gone and in need of being repaired. The good news that the Pope talks about is that it can be repaired. So shame, which is a result, has now two senses to it. Kind of a negative sense is shame is a threat to my own value as a person. Think of the experience of going to the doctor, huh? You know, not to get your arm looked at, but to go to the doctor for a physical. Think of the experience of what it is when someone walks in fully clothed and you're standing there in the middle of the room with nothing on. There is a sense of a threat to your value as a person. But shame also has a positive dimension to it, which is a means to preserve this value. We know when we're on the verge of being objectified and shame will kick in in a positive way and you go, nope, and out you go. Lust, second to the last point. Lust, we could say, is something like a diminishment of what once was. To lust after another person is to objectify another person, which means I now make myself to be the kind of person who uses other persons. 
And that's not a good thing to be, which causes us shame when we know we've done it, which is a good thing, which then leads us to repent. But to lust for another person does not mean to be attracted to the person. To lust means to objectify the person and to use them. We could say that in lusting after another, who you are really doesn't mean anything to me. I don't want the person. I want what the person can give to me. The Pope's indictment of pornography is not that it shows too much, it's that it shows too little. Because it does not reveal the persons, and it can't. And it's not interested in the persons. It's interested in objects, it's interested in instrumentalizing others, it's interested in maximizing my own pleasure from another, which is to say to treat another as a mere object for my enjoyment. That's lust. It totally depersonalizes the other. That's why the Pope says, it is possible for a husband and a wife to lust after each other. That doesn't mean that they have some inappropriate sexual attraction to each other. That's not the point at all. The point is to say that if we're not careful, we can reduce even those we love to objects. So lust is the objectification of another eye. Lastly, concupiscence. Concupiscence is the result of original sin. Thanks to Adam and Eve's sin, you and I are born with original sin. That is to say, we suffer some of the consequences of their rebellious choice. And those are washed away when we are baptized. We're restored to God's favor. We become his adopted children. The stain of original sin is gone at baptism, whether as a child or as an adult. But concupiscence doesn't get washed away at original sin. Concupiscence is the inclination to selfishness or the inclination to sin. It's the loss of the interior freedom that you and I, in our original condition, were once made for and with. That's what Adam and Eve had. They had this interior freedom where the will and the body were in perfect harmony. Now there is no perfect harmony. Now what's required is mastery, which can happen. This comes under the virtue of temperance, where you and I learn self-mastery. And it's only in learning self-mastery that we can actually engage in love Because in order to love somebody, I have to be able to have mastery over myself to be able to give myself to another person. So chastity falls under the virtue of temperance, and self-mastery is something like the raw material of love, the necessary prerequisite before I can actually love another person. That interior freedom was lost thanks to concupiscence. But all of this can be restored thanks to the redemption of Jesus and to what he has done in his passion, death, and resurrection. And that's what we're going to get into when we start looking at the effects of the redemption very practically and concretely in our lives as individuals, but then also in a particular way in our lives and our relationships with each other. This has been Christ is the Answer, program number 725. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734 734- 9304506 for program number 725 Image of God Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective This is Ave Maria Radio <laughs>